HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And today we're going to be talking about something that, depending on the day of the week in the community that you live in, a lot of Wednesdays, I think, we're going to be talking about the food sections of newspapers or food pages, or as they used to be called, the women's pages. And, you know, they've been around in newspapers, I guess, probably over 100 years, and were often overlooked, really, as, as nothing more than a collection of recipes or, or culinary advice akin to the Dear Abby columns. Not such a bad thing. And in the 70s, Gloria Steinem even called to have them banned from the pages as ghettos for women. Well, look back over some of those food pages, and you'll find some very interesting information. However, we tend to know the names of a few standouts. Like, I'm sure everyone recognizes the name Craig Claiborne, but do you know the name Jane Nickerson or Dorothy Crandall? My guest today is Kim Voss, and Kim is a associate professor and coordinator of journalism at the University of Central Florida, and she has spent a lot of time um, both for her her um, PhD dissertation and in writing a book, a recent book we're going to be talking about called The Food Section. Uh, she's been spent a lot of time exploring these writers and actually the art of food journalism and what it was, particularly after World War II, I would say. As she says, this book clarifies what newspaper food journalism was and and um, the information that's in them. Welcome, Kim. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, we communicated earlier, and, and you um, had done a, a paper, or I guess maybe it wasn't your dissertation, maybe it was your, a theme of a, of a conference paper, which you called Food Journalism, 
or culinary anthropology, which I absolutely love because I think it really, it really spells out a lot of what we're talking about today. Um, I agree. Uh, the term actually came from Jean Voltz, uh, which is how she described herself as a culinary anthropologist in her role as a food editor. Interesting. And, and she is one of those women behind the scenes. And your book, The Food Pages, uh, I mean, the, I'm sorry, The Food Section, uh, women, you have to, I don't have this written in front of me. So, have, Oh, here it is. The Food Section, Newspaper Women and the Culinary Community is the full title. And you really do explore some of these women from the early days. Um, my question to you is what, what do the food pages in newspapers tell us about culinary history? The food sections of the 1950s and the 1960s um, show that we had a more complex relationship with food than I think had previously been described. Um, you know, one of the terms that was tossed about was jello abuse, um, <laughs> that there was lots of convenience food for the times, and there certainly was some of that. But you see um, reviews of cookbooks with international dishes um, well before we see Julia Child appear. Um, you see us falling in and out of love with baking bread. Um, you see trends going in and out of style, although I would say the one thing that always remained was a love of bacon. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we've always tried to find ways to cut corners um, in cooking, as well as what the women often called weekend meals, which would have been things that you could spend some time on. Um, but there's always been kind of a mix of that, of people who are trying to do it quickly, um, as well as a love of making something from scratch. Right. Well, it's interesting because um, I picked up an old article. Oh, it was even pre- prior to the to the 50s. It was um, right before World War II, and so it was kind of like post-Depression era, and you talked about cutting corners. It was all about you know how to be a good homemaker, how to you know feed uh, your family a nutritious meal, and how to create something. You said the weekend meals, how to create something elegant and special out of very little. So right. it's it's nothing. I mean, that's always nothing new. That's that's the advice column. Those are the, that's the advice that women needed. Right. Oh, exactly. And, and it was also a connection to the readers in the community who may have felt alone or not known what to do in these situations. It really was a, a true community that these food editors created. They were often local celebrities um, in their cities or towns. Hmm. Interesting. Well, y- you pointed out in your book that um, you were kind of clarifying the newspaper journalism and how this media differs from, let's say, the food writing in the glossies, the magazines. Explain a little bit how you feel this difference um, plays out in the two, the two papers, two forms. Sure. Um, what you see with magazines, of course, they're national, so they don't have the same kind of connection um, to the local reader. So mm-hmm. food editors would explain that maybe um, a home cook would read about something in a magazine, not really know how to do it, and call your food editor. Right. That was your hyper-local conversation. Um, in addition was the role of advertising. At magazines, there's kind of a blurred line between advertising often and the editorial side, whereas at newspapers, that's usually a very strict line. Advertising does not impact um, the editorial side, and that's a pretty you know, large wall. You don't break that. 
Um, and so what I wanted to see if that was truly the same with food, because that had been the accusation, that these food editors were easily swayed um, by their local grocery store, by national advertisers, that they could be easily manipulated. And I, I wanted to see if that was true, because I knew that that wasn't true for the women's page in general. The women's pages operated just the same way that the other sections of your politicals, your um, your editorial side, your sports. And so I thought it was kind of strange that food, for whatever reason, would have been held to the same standard. Um, and so when I began looking at it, um, it was true. These women had high ethical standards. They were not easily swayed. Uh, they explained that if an advertiser kind of tried to force a recipe on them, it would go right in the garbage can. Um, and that they had themselves had to fire um, some food writers who had taken freebies from advertising companies. So clearly there was a very different relationship uh, when it came to the role of advertisers in the newspaper food section versus, say, maybe a food magazine. Interesting. So the the moniker Jello abuse for those pages was clearly wrong because <laughs> I mean obviously this was it they became the food pages became even more um, important and and more widespread during the time of of fast food coming up you know canned goods frozen foods right. so the obviously instruction for women on how and and home cooks on how to use it but. <laughs> and Jello, and Jello. I guess you had to find different ways to use Jello, but certainly Jello, not in the term of of taking it. You know, having to push the product, right? Right. Interesting. Uh, well, who were you know some of? I mean, food editors at that time were primarily that was primarily um, dominated by women, was it not? Yes, I only found uh, two men that were food editors um, versus, say, 125 to 150 food editors that attended the annual meeting. So, I mean, this was clearly women's work. And again, it was in the women's pages where that was pretty much the only place women could work at newspapers um, up until the late 60s and early 1970s. Um, So it was kind of natural that it would have come out um, that women would be writing this, many of the uh, editors had home economics journalism majors, mm-hmm. uh, which, which was a very popular uh, major, actually, at the time. And, of course, these home economics programs were producing women that were going into the workforce at universities, at high schools. Um, so home economics was a very um, viable career for women in the 50s and 60s that we don't often kind of talk about. Um, so they had this background that they were bringing as journalists, but as kind of specialists. Um, in that area. Yeah. Well, when you, I mean, when you consider the fact that a lot of recipes had to be tested before they could print them in the newspaper, and that certainly makes sense. Oh, yes. Um, and several newspapers had test kitchens. Um, other food editors would actually test it in their homes. Um, and another newspaper would um, ask reporters to test the recipes if they happened to be cooked, and they'd be reimbursed, you know, for the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, but the top newspapers did test all their recipes, um, other than the ones that came through the wires, because those were assumed to be have tested uh, then. It's worth mentioning that um, these food sections at this time could be up to 60 or 70 pages, just the food section. Wow. Uh, in that post-World kind of War II consumer era where you had all this advertising um, to fill it, and particularly, um, say, during the holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because... Um, now, I mean, I, I guess maybe because there are the proliferation of so many glossy magazines back in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Of course, now we're now it's all about the Internet that right. at times these <laughs> these food sections have become so slim. I mean, they barely exist. Yeah. 
Right. And, you know, and so that kind of explains, too, how much work these women had to do to put up, you know, because this was a time when you were setting it by hand. You didn't have computers and you were actually typing. Um, and so, you know, it was a, a very big job to put out these things. In addition to putting out their food sections, almost all the uh, food editors wrote cookbooks, um, cooking pamphlets, held cooking contests, judged contests, um, and later years traveled internationally quite a bit. Um, because, of course, if you're going to say uh, a dish tastes like authentic Italian cooking, you have to go to Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, so these women you know, really did have um, quite exciting and interesting careers um, that I think they, they were allowed to do that because it was in this women's section which didn't seem so threatening. Um, so that, you know, this writing about food allowed them to do all sorts of other things. Um, and what's, I think, different about food journalism versus other beats in a newspaper is many of these food editors stayed at the same newspaper for decades, uh, 40, 50 years. Um, you know, they knew the next generation of cooks from families. Um, and they really did know their community very, very well. Wow. And of course, then, and then we had syndication. So some of their columns were syndicated in other papers as well, right? Oh, yes. Um, the Chicago Tribune, um, the food editor there was a woman by the name of Ruth Ellen Church, who often wrote under the name Mary Mead. And she was quite well known for kind of finding people. She had a column that she had syndicated, uh, Cooking for Men, at a time when we kind of didn't expect that necessarily to be uh, grilling, maybe, but not cooking. And, and that was uh, Morrison Wood. And there were all of these kind of syndications where they connected to each other, too. The women often uh, would speak um, not only at the, the cooking competitions, but on the phone, um, and they would write about it in their sections, how they talked to so-and-so from across the country that was at another newspaper. Mm. Well, you mentioned food contests, cooking competitions, and yes. of course that was that was, was also a big draw to, to get these women to you know, to read the food sections, too. They were big across the country. That, they were so big. I mean, that was it was a fun thing, and there were prizes often. Now, how did they separate that editorial from advertising when, let's say, Pillsbury sponsored it? Sure. Um, well, it's kind of two different ways. The first is um, for their own personal contest. <clears throat> excuse me. They saw that as a service versus advertising. So, in other words, of how you would perm- almost kind of in a publicity standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and the women who won these contests, it was often a very big deal. Um, I found obituaries where stay-at-home women, um, that was their big deal, you know, that they, back in 1965, that their local newspaper had said they were the best cook, cook on the block. I mean, it really mattered. So it was kind of a service in that way. Um, when it came to um, things like the Pillsbury Bake Off, which, of course, you know, when they were giving away a million dollars, that's news. Um, but, uh, for example, the Louisville newspaper, they refused to call it the Pillsbury Bake Off. It was just mm-hmm. a national bake off. Huh. Um, so you, they kind of found their way around that. Um, in, uh, in Milwaukee, the food editor was allowed to go as long as there were local finalists. That was kind of how they, um, and they, they would have to, they would pay the airfare, you know, so to make sure that they weren't kind of taking too much from Pillsbury. Um, but, it, you know, it, again, it was another kind of networking way for these women to get together. Right. Well, that was um, basically through the 70s. I can see what Gloria Steinem meant when she wanted to have the pages banned because she called them, you know, women's ghettos. Because, if, as you said, if this was the only place where women right. could write for a newspaper, then indeed we should, you know, get rid of those and send these women out to write in other fields. But um, but this was their specialty, especially if they had home economics, food journalism backgrounds. I mean, that was, you know... What happened? All of a sudden, the men came in. What, <laughs> what, yes. What happened there? Well, in, 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 in Gloria Simon's defense about 
two or three years later, she did admit that maybe she had misstated that, that that actually may have been an empowering place for women. But by that time, it was really too late. Um, a bunch of things kind of happened at the same time to erase the food sections in the way they had been. Um, one was the call for the end of the women's pages. And so they turned into what we now see as style or lifestyle um, right. kinds of publications. The food section kind of spun out on itself then in the 1970s. We also saw the end of the home economics um, dominance. Uh, programs across the country um, by the early 1970s have gotten rid of it in the way that it had once been. And they would even change its names. I think at one point there was like two dozen variations of what once had been Homec as schools kind of tried to distance themselves if they could. Technical, sci- technical science and, and industry or something. It was, yeah, anything yeah. But, but Homec. Right, anything right? but Homec, <laughs> you know. And so all those things kind of happened. And as you mentioned, in the, the theory, the hope was that women then, if we, we put men in the food section and men in the style section, that women would get to cover politics and sports and all those areas that had been denied them. And it didn't really happen that way. Um, you know, some women got to do some things, but um, for many of them, um, you know, they were still covering soft news. And, and historians don't tend to like to look at soft news, the food, the fashion, the feature stories. They like front page. They like covering war, you know, right. those kinds of things where women are in men's space in that way. Um, and so all of those things kind of happened. Um, and you had mentioned Jane Nickerson earlier, and I, I think in part it has been this um, almost echo chamber discussion of James Beard and Craig Claiborne, right, all these men. Um, because Jane Nickerson, when she left, um, she was at the New York Times as their first food editor from 1942 to 1957. Um, and many papers said she retired, and she didn't. She came down to Lakeland, Florida, and raised her four children. Um, by 1973, she's a food editor at the Lake Ledger, and she's already written a cookbook. Um, but she was, um, I'd say, a humble person, unlike someone like Craig Claiborne, who was a self-promoter. Mm-hmm. And so she see her kind of marginalized. Um, but she was the first one to write about James Beard. She was the first one to write about Craig Claiborne. Um, if you consider the, the food development that happened um, post-World War II, or even the rationing of the war, um, what Jane was doing was inherently important. Um, as she wrote about, um, you know, all sorts of big chefs at fancy restaurants, as well as local home cooks. Right, they um, would, and, because they would, they would also be reviewing restaurants in their local neighborhoods, oh, right? Yes. Yeah, in fact, she, uh, she and her future husband, as well as James Beard and Cicely Brownstone, who had been the um, longtime food editor for the Associated Press, the four of them would often go out to eat together. Um, and, and key, in many ways, to telling the story had been that Cicely Brownstone did an oral history. Um, that's at the Fales Library at NYU. And she really clarified a lot of this um, and kind of made sure that I knew I was going down the right path um, as I read her oral history about New York food and about Jane. Right. Well, and, and I think that that was um, conducted by Laura Shapiro, right? And Laura's, yes, Laura's been a guest on the show. And, um, of course, she writes so much about or has written so much about food journalism and, and the yes. early people. Um, and she, too, I mean, she says she goes, she uses those food pa- pages when she does um, culinary history, when she looks, you know, and you look at history of things. And the contributions uh, from to culinary history to the food world from these pages is immeasurable, really. It really was, and, and I guess I was kind of surprised as I began to look at this that no one had went and looked at the sections. I mean, no one really had taken apart what was there and who these women were, uh, what they had accomplished. Uh, and so they were, you know, I got up to more than 60 women when I published the book. I'm now um, near 80, and hmm. they were all really good stories. I mean, wow. they made my job very easy. <laughs> well, I want to talk about some of these specific uh, women that you explored when we come back after a short break, so stay tuned. Mm-hmm. 
You are listening to New Ease by Mama Razzi. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Okay, and we're back talking with Kim Voss about the food section of your local newspaper. <laughs> Sounds like an advertisement <laughs> right there. <laughs> and even though a lot of the those the uh, food pages are online today, and you can get them a day in advance or two days in advance, I I still just love getting that for us. It's in the New York Times. It's the Wednesday section. I just love getting that section and pouring over. It doesn't take too much time anymore because, as I say, it's it, it <laughs> diminished to a few pages. But then they're always continued online. They expand, you know, the expanded version is always online. But there's just something special about holding that, that you know, that special section and, and knowing that I'm going to find something of interest that I can apply to, you know, to my daily life. And um, you talked about, um, Kim, about these some of these journalists um, and their contributions, one of them being introducing ethnic foods. Yes. Uh, so what, what, and what, there is an interesting story, and I think you, we're talking about the story of curry. Yes. Can you, yes. can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, you know, we've made broad generalizations about food, um, particularly in the 50s and 60s. And so for a long time, the, the theory was that um, we had more international dishes being cooked because men had gone to war and tried these various dishes and came home and asked their, their wives or mothers to cook for them. Um, but Nora Ephron, um, in writing about food, said that maybe it was the introduction of curry. That was the changing point um, in our uh, American dishes trying our new palate, new ideas. Uh, and Cicely Brownstone was the one that had kind of first written about curry. Um, she wrote for the Associated Press, and so um, her columns went across the, the country, um, and she was a real champion of curry when it was, and kind of normalized it um, for American meals. Huh, interesting. And, and um, I, I mean, just, I remember, I can still see um, page, uh, recipes cut out from the food section in my mother's old cookbooks and even yeah. in my old cookbooks from way back when, and it would be, you know, there'd be that Chinese recipe or, you know, a recipe for some Asian-flavored um, dish or Hungarian dish, and and then in fact, um, well, of course, you said Craig Claiborne was a great self promoter, but yeah. he and he published the international cookbooks, you know, from collect from collected recipes that he published in the New York Times, and they are, I mean, they were all very good recipes, and they they spanned the globe. It was interesting, but these women were doing it all along. So let's talk about right. some of these women in particular. Um, Cecily Brownstone, of course, you've mentioned. Um, 
to end, um, and I mentioned Dorothy Crandall up front. She wrote for the Boston Globe, right? So, yeah. So give me some of the interesting, the ones you found who had very maybe interesting lives or, or had a, made a poignant um, discovery or contribution. Well, I think you mentioned Dorothy Crandall, and the comment that always kind of came up about her was she was well known for <clears throat> the recipe she shared with her readers, where you um, you cooked a roast under the uh, your car as you drove. It would cook um, next to the engine, um, and that was not actually a, an uncommon thing to do. Um, innovative, strange ways uh, of cooking food. Um, that, actually, I was, gonna, I was going to open the show with that, saying, you've all heard the story about cooking a roast on your engine, but I bet you don't know who wrote it, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, there was the, um, the food editor in Denver um, who had put a, uh, introduced a recipe um, having to do with uh, cooking with bourbon. She was going to have a dish with chicken. And all of a sudden, she got all these phone calls that, these, this dish had exploded out of the um, their ovens. Of course, it's high altitude cooking, so that makes some things different. But no one could figure out why this chicken dish was exploding. So they, um, their lawyers were concerned, of course. So they had um, some food economists come out and test. And what happened was um, these home cooks were doubling the amount of bourbon and then putting foil around it. So they were basically creating little bombs that were going <laughs> off. Um, so her whole her whole career, she was kind of known for the exploding chicken uh, recipe that she had. Um, Ruth Ellen Church, as I mentioned, from the Chicago Tribune, who was there nearly five decades, was the um, first newspaper uh, wine editor. I mean, that's almost unheard of, you know. Well, yeah, yes. It's, it's amazing. It, and she got to, um, again, travel quite a bit abroad to write about wines. And, um, and, and really was kind of the first one to kind of normalize something and make it less exotic and something that was more um, approachable for Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, Jean Voltz, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, who was really the very first champion of barbecue. And we take that for granted now because we have shows and all sorts of cookbooks and it's for kind of elevated form, particularly talk about Southern cooking. Uh, but when Jean wrote about it, you know, you didn't write about barbecue. Because um, you know French food and European food were kind of the standards, um, but and, and everyone says, and everyone was supposed to know how to barbecue, right? <laughs> yes, right. And you know, as Jean had spoke about it later, she just thought that was a good story that no one had told. Hmm. You know, at the heart, many of these women were journalists. Um, in fact, the uh, the food uh, editor that was in. Um, uh, Minnesota had mentioned that she loved being a journalist, so she loved her early stories when she burned things or things didn't work out. That's a better narrative than, right, the food that turns out well. Um, and so 30 years later, when she was a very accomplished cook, and her readers would say, we miss the old days. We miss when you made mistakes. It was entertaining to read that way. <laughs> um, and, and many of them were actually very poor cooks. Um, the food editor at the St. Petersburg Times, colleagues had told me that she was just a horrible cook. They hated when she brought uh, food in for potlucks and that sort of thing. Um, and some of these journalists um, didn't want to be considered to be cooks in the, in the same way that the Milwaukee editor had mentioned. You don't expect a court rep- uh, reporter who's covering the court system to go out and commit crimes to write about it. Right. You, you don't expect your sports reporter to be a great athlete. Um, and so some of these women uh, were actually quite insulted if they were asked if they were cooks um, hmm. because their expertise, so just their beats, you know, the, the journalism. Um, and, and I'd say probably one of my favorites was Peggy Dom, who was a longtime food editor um, at um, the Milwaukee Journal. Uh, it was because of Peggy that the Association of Food Journalists was created. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there were annual meetings that these women would meet up at. Um, there was a chance for politicians to speak, for food um, uh, advertisers to show their new, you know, their new products, um, the new trends of the year, you know, that sort of thing. Um, in 1971, um, 
Senator Frank Moss uh, showed up at the meeting. And again, government officials often did. It wasn't unheard of. Um, but he was a big consumer advocate. Um, and he actually called these women to their faces, whores of the supermarket. Huh. And, you know, for the, this idea that they were being manipulated, um, it's later that night, um, it was in Chicago, and in Peggy Dom's Chicago hotel room, all these food editors got together and claimed that they would never have this happen to them again. Um, and so a couple of years later, they did have their own, um, their own organization, um, they had their own speakers, and they had their own food contests, um, writing contests, and that sort of thing. Um, and Peggy was their first president. And so it was easy to say the Milwaukee Journal because those are all on Google News, which made it a little bit easier, too. Um, but she had a master's degree in journalism. Um, she'd had an undergrad in home economics journalism um, and wrote two cookbooks. Um, you know, she was kind of very symbolic of, of many of the women um, that I came across. Right. Well, um, there, you know, there there did come that period in the 70s where I mentioned Gloria Steinem that, you know, that whole um, – and you even um, – have a, a chapter devoted to the changes in food and feminism and the demise yeah. of home cooking. Uh, what? How, so, what did we see with the food pages in when around that time? Well, sure. Um, what you kind of be, throughout the sixties, you really did see some change, and you saw more nutrition news. Um, I remember there's one story that explained how the reader would say the word cholesterol. It was kind of that new the understanding right. of health and that sort of thing. Um, and so, part of what happens with the loss of women's pages and the spitting out of the food section in the 70s is that you also saw um, more consumer news that was covering food. So some of the things that had been in the women's section um, was now in the consumer. Um, and again, you saw these women's pages that had really been great advocates for their communities um, go away. Um, and I think that was a, a real mistake for many newspapers because there was a real connection between these these um, women's sections and their readership. Most, in fact, all newspapers that I came across had recipe exchange columns. So the idea would be if you lost grandma's recipe for, you know, a key lime pie, mm -hmm. if you went to a restaurant and tried something, there would be a column in the newspaper, in the food section, that would help you find that. And it's often what you kind of think of today as crowdsourcing. Often right. it would be the food editor would put the question out there, and readers would send things in. And so it was a real close relationship. Um, and at many newspapers, they had a whole economic staff that would look up recipes. You, you know, before we had Google to help us find recipes, a, a home cook would call into her newspaper and say, I would like a recipe for this. And it would be found, copied, and mailed out to her. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of, that kind of relationship um, was really what the women's pages in large part were about. And so I think getting rid of that um, section really helped change the relationship between women in particular, women readers and their newspapers. Um, you know, there used to be a saying that there was three times um, a good woman had her name in the paper. When you got born, you got married, and when you died. And I often found in my reading there was a fourth time that a woman's name should be in the newspaper, and that's when she was cited as a good cook. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I like that that community feeling that the newspaper food sections gave, that they, they were very community-oriented. Um, I think less so we see today. In fact, that's what right. I wanted to ask you is what, what do you see as some of the major differences in the newspaper food sections today, and, and where do you think they're headed? Well, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, they're much smaller. Um, and there's a lot less room. I mean, there is online digital content, of course, but the, it, it does make me feel sad to see how small those print sections um, have gotten, particularly because they once were so thick. Um, and it, it's worth noting that all that advertising that went into that food section didn't go back to that food editor. 
that was monies and revenue that went to help the rest of the newspaper um, do the things that they wanted to do. Um, I do think that traditional food editors and, um, at newspapers still have quite a lot of power. You know, um, they have a following on social media, they have a following online. People know their names in the same sort of way that they did back in the day. So I, I do think there is a sense of that. I, I certainly hope that newspapers respect that, um, the connection um, to the food editor, because there really is something there. Um, it, I do a lot of talks um, throughout Florida about my book. And in every audience, I have a collection of people that want to talk about their food editor, that they, as you mentioned, they've clipped those coupons. They know them so well. Um, and so as we see more of an interest in food, I'd say um, more recently, I hope that the food editors continue to be part of that conversation. Right. Well, and the writing, I think I, I have seen definitely a, an improvement in the quality of the writing. Um, and, and it was a um, male food journalist who um, actually had once uh, spoken to a group of culinary historians who said, well, you know, we're looking here. There, not a lot of work was done in, I guess, curating, I think they were old menus, or um, yes, at the New York Public Library. He said, because, you know, any writing about food was never considered academic enough. It was never really considered right. serious journalism. So I think that we've gotten over that, and and yeah. hopefully hopefully we will continue <laughs> to have, well, I mean, just look at the, look at the, 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 I would say glut, but I don't, I don't want to say glut. That's sort of derogatory. I want to say the flood of wonderful <laughs> food books that are out there and, yeah. and the articles. And I just think the writing has, has continued to get better and better and that we do appreciate um, good food journalism. And, and especially you, we, we, I'm so happy to have this book because it sheds such a bright light on, on what this is. And is it food journal or is, is it food journalism or is it culinary anthropology? I'd like to say it is both. And yeah, Happily so. And Kimberly Voss, thank you so much for joining me for this half hour through culinary history. And I hope, everyone, you will tune in again. I've been your host, Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. The theme song for A Taste of the Past is provided by Bohemia. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.